Hello, and welcome to another episode of First Do No Harm. Today, we will be discussing the ethics of organ allocation and transplantation, and we are so pleased to have with us Dr. Mark Posner, Professor Emeritus of Transplant Surgery and Vascular Surgery at VCU School of Medicine, as well as former director of the Hume Lee Transplant Center at VCU Health System, and the David M. M. Hume Endowed Chair in Surgery. Dr. Posner received his medical degree from the Medical College of Wisconsin and completed his residency in general surgery from Boston University Medical Center and his fellowships in vascular surgery and transplant surgery from NYU Medical Center and VCU Medical Center, respectively. He currently works as a vascular surgeon in the McGuire Veterans Hospital in Richmond, Virginia. Dr. Posner has over 30 years of experience directing the Humley Transplant Center at VCU, where he was actively involved with organ allocation and transplant decisions, so we are very happy to have him discuss some of the ethical scenarios he encountered. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Posner. Could you start off by telling us about the history of organ transplantation? And for our listeners who might not be familiar, could you describe what the current system of organ allocation looks like today, as well as share a little bit more about the history of organ allocation and transplantation and the creation of UNOS and what exactly they do? So in 1984, I was a young faculty. My boss was H.M. Lee. He was the president of the American Society of Transplant Surgeons that year, and he pretty much helped move this National Organ Transplant Act through uh, with a lot of uh, legislative help. And uh, basically, this was a milestone in figuring out and in, in trying to establish the uh, ethical principles um, to regulate uh, organ allocation, organ distribution, organ recovery. And something called the Organ Procurement and Transplantation Network, the OPTN, was created. And the contract went out, and UNOS got the contract. And UNOS has had the contract continuously since 1984, as it now. That's really fascinating. Could you tell us a little more about the ethical principles involved in organ allocation and transplantation and what UNOS uses to guide allocating these limited resources? What was generated was what was referred to as the final rule. And this described basically three main ethical principles, utility, justice, and respect for persons as the underlying guiding principle. So utility, you probably all know, is the, is, is the greatest good for the greatest number. Uh, this goes back to the Hippocratic Oath, which includes the beneficence, uh, do good, and the non-maleficence, primum non nocere, or first do no harm. And uh, other principles of utility include patient survival, graft survival, quality of life, available uh, alternative treatments, age, and you'll notice that social worth or value of individuals is not considered because as part of the oath that we all take, we are uh, requested anyway to behave in a non-judgmental way towards all patients. Justice uh, was defined or described as fairness and distribution of benefits, uh, burdens, or organ procurement and allocation programs. So uh, the, the goal was to establish uh, equal access, equitable access to transplantation, equitable allocation among transplant centers and patients, uh, weightless selection uh, to be uh, accomplished in some sort of fair and just manner. Um, inclusion rather than exclusion is the basic tenet of the allocation ethics and equal respect and concern for each patient. I think that was a really great summary of all the main principles involved in organ transplantation, and it's definitely a lot to think about. 
We spoke last week to Dr. Levinson about the four main principles of bioethics, which you mentioned, autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. But organ allocation involves so much more since you want to achieve equitable access and make sure that the patient with the transplanted organ will have a high survival rate after. How do you balance all these principles when making decisions about who should receive an organ? Do you think one principle, such as justice or utility, kind of guides the decision more than others, or do they weigh against each other at all? So obviously, between these two concepts, before we get to the third one, there can be some conflict. And uh, one of the, the um, qualities that's um, put up uh, as something that should guide allocation is quality of life years, quality life years. Uh, expected. And this gets into some difficulty because this, between medical need and medical benefits, there may be some conflict. Prioritizing the sickest patient first, even if healthier patients will have better outcomes, um, is something that we have done and is a way, an attempt to resolve this conflict. Uh, And this involves other factors that need to come into play besides just utility and justice. And these include medical urgency, the likelihood of finding a suitable organ uh, at present or in the future, uh, what to do with waiting time, uh, what to do with patients who need a second, third, or fourth transplant, uh, whether to um, advantage or disadvantage uh, patients based on age criteria and geography. You brought up some great points about the different considerations that may not fall directly within those four main principles, like waiting time and making sure there is a just distribution of resources around the country. I know geography is one of the factors UNOS uses. Could you speak a little about how that works? Geography is kind of an interesting one because when UNOS came into being, the country was divided into 11 regions. And... uh, The allocation scheme was developed so that organ allocation or organ recovery locally was offered first locally, then regionally, then nationally. So we were in region 11 and that involved uh, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky. And so if we pulled a pair of kidneys at MCB hospital we have actually, we had a common list in Virginia, for example, and it was offered to the patient at the top of that list. If, if no patient was available or wanted the kidney, then it would go out to the region. If nobody in the region was available, then it would go to the national list. If nobody nationally wanted this kidney, it might go someplace like Turkey or some other international destination. I guess it makes sense to prioritize geographic location to make sure the organ is still viable and that the community where it came from kind of gets first dibs. You also mentioned something else I thought was interesting, that interplay between the sickest first principle versus prognosis, or who would get the most benefit out of the organ. How do you think these two principles are weighed against each other, or how does the current system balance them? Do you think it's equitable and just? Okay, so those are five different questions. And I'm going to get into it a little more at the, toward the end, but um, for kidneys, um, the utility principle is the main driver. For livers, the justice or the sickest patient first is the main driver. 
that's not to say that waiting time, for example, is not important on the liver list, but it's it's uh, subservient to sickest patient first and vice versa for kidney. We can have a discussion about the ethics of that once we develop this a little bit further. Yeah. Okay. So the third category is, is autonomy or respect for persons. Humans should be ends in themselves. Uh, there should be honesty and fidelity to any commitments made. There should be respect for autonomy, so there should be no coercion or interference as long as the decisions do no harm. That has to do with consent issues. Uh, justice over autonomy uh, pertains when we uh, prohibit selling of organs, as the National Organ Transplant Act did. In other words, if I want to sell my organs and, and I'm autonomous, I should be able to do that, but it's against the law in this country. Um, duty to respect donors who refuse to donate organs, uh, right to refuse an organ, um, allocation by directed donation. So in that case, um, a donor or a donor family directs the donation to a specific individual on the wait list. Usually it's a relative. Turns out that cousin Joe needs a kidney and, and so-and-so in our family just died and wants to donate both kidneys. We want one of those kidneys to go to cousin Joe. That's allowed. And that is an example of how autonomy uh, overrules justice or utility or, and utility. And then transparency of processes and allocation. Uh, in my opinion, I think UNOS has done a good job with this, but uh, the article you sent me says otherwise. <laughs> Okay, so then there's some other factors that are relative to access to the wait list. Uh, besides the ethical rules, we have clinical indicators, uh, which would be comorbidities, uh, causes of organ failure, um, and psychosocial, which there is a question about this. This is a necessity. I mean, this is not uh, an elective kind of thing. If the patient can't pay for the transplant one way or another, or doesn't have social support, or is not gonna be compliant with what we ask them to do and what medicines, they're not gonna get on the list. And in some cases, the, you know, it's a problem. I will tell you that even though the kidneys are paid for pretty much by Medicare, Medicare only pays for three years of immunosuppression and doesn't pay for the other drugs that the patient may be on, for example, cholesterol drugs or insulin or um, uh, hypertension. And at the end of the three years, the patient needs to come up with some other way to pay. Liver transplants are paid for by insurance. If you don't have insurance, you're not going to have, it's going to be hard to find a place that'll do your liver transplant. Um, it's a $350,000 undertaking. And although I was able to convince VCU hospital to pay for two a year, that's as far as I got. So I was able to do two indigent patients a year, and I was able to um, transplant them out several years using promised spots for the years ahead. So I, I have one, one question to these factors. Sure. I feel like financial constraints, maybe some people are unhappy with, but, but, but they can more mentally understand that and, and I guess a little bit accept it. But in terms of the social support, what do you think the ethics are of, I guess, kind of... Um, discriminating against people who like aren't married or didn't start a family or don't have like they, those, those they need to have somebody to help take care of them is what that's all about they don't have to have a family or be an upstanding citizen or any of that kind of thing they have to have somebody who can help them because otherwise they're not going to keep their transplant 
So if somebody is living, you know, uh, under the Lee Bridge, we're not going to be able to transplant them unless they can come up with some social support system that can help them. Because there's a lot involved with taking the medicines, getting the medicines, coming to the clinic to see us, taking care of yourself. It's a, it's a complex process, and uh, in almost every situation, you can't be by yourself. And certainly not for the first three to six months. So if they don't have strong social support, is there anything that can be done, or what happens to those patients? So there have been some patients who have, you know, minimal or no social support. We, we can try to find some to help them, but we can't always succeed. And so in some cases, patients can't be listed because of that problem. Dr. Posner, I have a question regarding um, uh, sort of financial compensation for organs. Um, I've read some arguments saying that there should be a way of compensating donors. I think the idea of buying an organ is problematic for a lot of reasons, um, but the argument is that if you provide some sort of compensation incentive for people to donate organs, or I guess even like um, blood or bone marrow, that it would increase the supply of organs. Um, but then there's a lot of ethical concerns around that as well. So I wonder if you could speak to that. Like, have you heard good arguments for and against that notion? And okay, so what you're talking about are various sort of compensate compensatory. Um, payments, if you will, for living donors, and one, let's talk about that first, who need to take four to six weeks away from work, who may not get family leave, uh, who uh, going forward may have trouble getting health insurance because now they have a pre-existing condition, they're missing a kidney, for example. And so a lot of that has, uh, you know, the, the transplant community has tried to address that. And there are things like you mentioned, there are tax credits, there's actually uh, some long-term insurance that, that can be provided. There's, um, in some cases, um, we can uh, interact with the employer and ask them to look kindly on this individual, and most employers will. Now, there's one more thing for living donors, and this, ha and this is called reciprocity. And it has a, it's a little bit like what you're talking about, not exactly. And in that case, if a living donor, kidney donor, ends up needing a kidney transplant somewhere down the road, the, the rules are that they go to the top of the deceased donor wait list so that they will get a transplant sooner than later. So that system actually in Israel, which had a very poor donors per million number, uh, worked really well with some other things. Um, in some places, they actually, well, in one place, Iran, they pay living unrelated donors and they provide them insurance and some other perks. And this is so successful that they have no wait list. So there's definitely some arguments to be made for paying donors that what is the counter argument? The counter argument is it undercuts, undermines, cheapens the whole realm of altruism and it may uh, depress the number of uh, altruistic donors that want to come forward. Uh, now they all want to get paid. So we're going to get into this a little bit more when we get into consent and deceased donor. I don't know, does that answer your question? or It does, yeah. yeah. I, have one, I have one quick follow-up too. So I've also recently read that there are um, sort of what they call like crowdsourcing funding, like GoFundMe, where people online can donate money um, to somebody who is either uh, looking for a donation or wants to donate, 
to compensate them for the things that you you were just saying, like uh, taking yeah. time off and the rest. Um, and but I've also read that that can amount to a basically buying essentially buying an organ in the sense that um, somebody who you know is in need of an organ um, can sort of help promote you know people donating to the, a potential donor donating money to compensate a potential donor. So have have you read much about that? Do you think? Well, so if the, if it's the recipient who's who's filling the GoFundMe account, yeah, that would be a problem. We have discovered, you know, over the course of my career, we have discovered, I can remember one, one or two cases where the living donor, liver donor, after all was said and done, we figured out, got paid by the recipient. What do you do in those situations when you find out? Do you have to report it or does it affect future transplants? Yeah, nobody wants to really hear about it. These were two sisters. They were actually biker chicks. Two biker chicks, one donated her liver to the other one, and they had a big fight on the floor over the money at some day post-op. And we all sort of said, oh, God. Um, there was another case. Uh, for a while, I had a, a partner from, a surgeon from Venezuela was my partner, and he wanted to bring up some living donor liver pairs, and so we did. And it turns out that the the it was a wealthy Venezuelan who was bringing a not so wealthy Venezuelan who was going to donate a kidney or a liver. Uh, and we sort of said, no, we're not going to do that. But we did a few of those before we figured it out. So, you know, that I think is the major, one of the major objections to compensation for donors. And that is that it's, it's uh, unregulated and it can, and it can end up being corrupt and uh, dishonest and unethical. So in a country like Iran, where, the, where it's, you know, it's sort of a, it's a totalitarian state, they, everything is regulated. They got it well regulated. And they have solved their problem. Of course, they have so much money that they can pay all their citizens, a, a, you know, yearly income without even worrying about it. So um, can I ask just one more follow-up? Sure. So the, the recipient cannot reimburse the donor anything, even, even if it's compensation for lost time or or just the procedure itself, but a third party is able to um, compensate the donor? I think the recipient probably can, but there can't be any, you know, hint of payment in the, in the pure sense of the term for the organ. So this recipient can't say, well, you're going to miss four months of work. I'll just give you the four months of salary. So I'll help you. Yeah, I'll help you. I think that that can happen. That's not really paying for the tax credit stuff that can happen. That happens in some states. The other sort of methods that you mentioned, those things are legitimate as long as there's no outright buying and selling. This is really interesting. I think we all know face value that paying for an organ on the black market is unethical. But I, for one, didn't really consider the other ways payment could be achieved that may be legal, but perhaps not moral or ethical. Going back to our discussion on the different guiding principles for organ transplantation, can you give us a quick summary of all the different models there are for organ allocation? We talked about utilitarian, we talked about favors the neediest, which is called prioritarian. Um, egalitarian um, suggests that all people have an equal opportunity uh, and priority is given to waiting time. That is the kidney transplant wait list at this point. All these models try to, in one way or another, um, resolve the conflicts between the, the three main principles that I started out with. That's a good summary of the basic models of prioritization. 
and I want to delve into each of them a little deeper. But before we do that, can you share with our listeners what exactly occurs with an organ transplantation? What's that process and surgery look like? Okay, so let's start with a living donor transplantation. Uh, in this case, we're going to take an organ from a healthy person. Person, We're going to invade their body and uh, remove an organ and put it into another needy person. Uh, the whole thing revolves around consent and safety. So consent is should be without coercion or payment. Now, you could say, well, gee, there's always going to be some coercion in a family. And you're right. I mean, we've seen it. And you can't sort of, you're not, not sure what to do about it. But sometimes when we can recognize it and we understand that the donor really doesn't want to donate we will give that donor a physiologic out. In other words, your kidney is not good enough, your hypertension is too much, uh, some reason that you can't be a donor. But in general, there should be no, it should be voluntary. And then this donor of the safety, that has to do with the mortality and morbidity of the procedure, which for kidney is, the mortality is very low, one in 10, one, or one to five in 10,000, and the morbidity is probably a little lower than I have it there, maybe five or 10%. That actually sounds like it might be expensive with all the maintenance, and you mentioned Medicare not always covering all the associated medications patients who are donors or even transplant recipients need. Is that the case from your experience? Are patients able to afford it, or is price an obstacle? Uh, Long-term, these patients, some of them might have trouble, do have trouble getting health insurance. Um, once Obamacare came along and, and took care of the pre-existing conditions, it was, it, it's much less of a problem. That makes sense, and I'm glad we still have the Affordable Care Act in place today to help patients with pre-existing conditions. What you've described so far already sounds like a lot for both the donor and recipient to manage, but long-term care is essential for success. Are living donors the main form of transplant today, or what other types of transplant are commonly used? Uh, so, the, so the living donor started out living-related with, with twins. And then when I started in the 80s, we were just doing relatives. And then it, as the outcomes got better, we moved on to living unrelated. So that can be a spouse, a friend, uh, a church member, an acquaintance of some sort. And then we moved on to stranger to stranger or good, what's called Good Samaritan donors. These are people who um, get a sign from wherever that they need to donate a kidney. Uh, and they don't, they just want to donate it to anyone on the list and don't expect anything in return. And then there's the solicited category, which has to do with those patients who will put it out on the internet or put up a billboard or do something like that to try and attract a kidney or a liver or whatever. And then there's a new category, which has come along and is not quite approved yet, but it's called imminent death donation. And I'm going to describe that in a minute. You mentioned there are pretty good outcomes with live donor transplantation, so that's really great to hear. If anyone listening is interested in becoming a living donor, maybe someone out there is feeling especially altruistic today, how would they go about doing that? Um, okay, well, they can call the VCU Transplant Clinic, 828-4104, and ask to talk to somebody about it. Otherwise, they could go through UNOS. Okay. They can get on the UNOS website, and there's a, there's a pathway if you're not in Virginia. Ask a question about the physiological out you mentioned um, for donors that were not um, that felt pressured into donating. Um, is this? Do you ask a standard set of questions um, to try to determine that? Is that something that you go looking for, um, 
So every, yes, every donor is seen by the social worker and the psychiatrist or psychologist, and they'll usually uncover that. And then we'll, we'll have a, you know, a heart to heart with the donor and try and figure it out. And if it's clear, then we'll, you know, most cases without them knowing it, we'll provide a, a reason that they're not the donor. Because especially in a family, you would think it would be more common in the unrelated situation, but it's not. It's more common in a family. The family is expecting, you know, the brother to give to the sister or whatever. That makes sense. I was wondering if, like, if they ever come in and just say, I don't want to do this, but they're, they're pressuring you into it. Can you help uh, me? That happens. Yes, that can happen. Or they just don't come, you know, when we see that. So if I see somebody who needs a kidney transplant, uh, I start talking to them about, you know, you, your best option is a living donor kidney. Do you have anybody that might want to give you a kidney? Mother, father, child, friend, church member, work, work acquaintance, etc. And uh, if you do, let them come forward. We'll take some blood. We'll check the compatibility, and then we'll move on from there. And so it can stop right there. The person, a lot of times, somebody in the family says yes, but they never come forward, so it doesn't go anywhere. But sometimes it goes somewhere, and they, at, toward the end, they say, "Wait a second, I don't really want to do this." If you do suspect coercion, is there anything you can do as the provider to alleviate that or address that? What is your role? This is what we do. We let them off the hook. I'm not, we're not going to get involved in the family dynamics and say, why are you beating up your child here to give a kidney? You know, that's not for us to do, really. That makes sense. And I think it's important for people to know that the healthcare provider is on the patient's side. In this case, the potential donor. No one should ever really be forced into a medical procedure if they are not comfortable. And most people don't really wake up one day and say, hey, let me donate my kidney or part of my liver to a complete stranger. So what do you do when organs are scarce, but there is a dire need? The reason we're talking about this, the reason there's ethical decisions is because we don't have enough organs to, to satisfy the number of people that need them. The list keeps getting bigger and the number of transplants is not keeping up with it. And so um, we're looking for ways to expand um, the donor pool. But first, let's talk about how you, how you get to be a deceased donor. So there are, t- there are two types of donors, donation after brain death, DVD, and donation after cardiac death, DCD. And the whole issue of brain death was controversial in the beginning. And then uh, there was a NIH Harvard uh, consensus conference in 1968, which established criteria for brain death. Uh, and then this was followed up in 79 to 82 with the President's Commission on uh, Ethics of Medicine, and there are the definitions. The irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory function is DCD, donation after cardiac death, and the irreversible cessation of all brain function, including brain stem, uh, is DBD. Uh, basically, the brain-dead donor has an intact circulation, and so the quality of the organs is going to be a lot better. The DCD, the way that we currently do it is that um, if the patient meets the criteria for the Natural Death Act in Virginia, which says that death either needs to be imminent or the situation is hopeless, and this has to be uh, validated by two physicians who are not associated with the transplant program, then we will withdraw support. And when the patient um, has no circulation and no, res- uh, no respiratory function plus two or three minutes, then we will quickly harvest the organs and cool them. So this, that technique obviously results in a, in a warm ischemia time, in a time where the organs are not getting um, nutrition or oxygen. And so you would expect that they might have more trouble. They might not work as well, and that would be true. But they work in most cases well enough if we carefully select how, how we 
pick which patients are good DCD donors. Uh, one other thing I did want to mention to you, this is something called the Tucker trial, which actually occurred in 1982, but referred back to uh, the first heart and a pair of kidneys that were done in MCV in 1968 by Dr. Hume and and the family came forward and accused the doctors of uh, harvesting the organs and killing the donor. So basically before the donor was dead. This was a huge scandalous trial. Douglas Wilder, who was the governor of Virginia in 1989, was the plaintiff's attorney. And a guy named Jack Russell, who runs a big law firm in town, was the defendant. And uh, make a long story short, Dr. Hume and Dr. Lauer were acquitted. This sort of prompted this Harvard consensus conference to establish criteria for brain death. That's really interesting. I had no idea the history of organ transplantation and organ death criteria was established out of VCU precedent. It's good to know VCU has been involved in the ethics of organ transplantation from the beginning since they started doing transplants here very early. That case actually brings up another question I had about informed consent for organ donation. We talked a little bit about living donors not being coerced, but how does that process work for deceased donors, and what ethical issues have you seen arise? The main impediment to deceased donor recovery of organs is consent. Presumed consent is something that uh, exists not in the USA, but in Europe and Australia. Basically, it's an opt-out. So if you're a citizen in one of these countries and you um, wind up being an organ donor, either because of brain death or DCD, um, consent is presumed unless somebody comes forward and your family, a family member comes forward and um, tries to stop it. In which case, in some countries, they will ignore it, but in most countries, they will say, okay, we're not going to do it. Spain is the first country in 1979 to establish presumed consent, and they currently are still doing it and have the highest um, donors per million rate at 35. In the U.S. and most state, in all states, um, there's something called expressed consent or first-person consent, which means when you go to the DMV, they're going to ask you whether you want to be an organ donor, and it's on your license, and it's also in a registry. So if somebody comes into our ER and we can't find a next of kin, or even if we can, we can check the DMV registry and see if they've signed up to be an organ donor. Uh, and if so, we can move ahead. Once again, we have the legal authorization to do that without the family's blessing, but in most cases, if the family makes a big fuss, we will back away. But that has made a huge improvement in the number, in the conversion rate. The conversion rate is the number of donors that come to uh, recovery surgery over the total number of possible donors. And like I'm saying, the main impediment to that is consent. Um, yeah. You, you mentioned that Spain has one of the highest um, donor to recipient rates. Um, where does the United States stand globally? Okay, so the, so OPOs manage organ recovery. OPOs are organ procurement organizations, and there are, I'm going to say, 50 organ procurement agencies or organizations in this country. They manage the organ donation, and in each location, the donors per million is different, and uh, Virginia, the organ procurement organization is LifeNet, and uh, their um, donors per million is in the range of 25 to 30, and that's one of the better ones. On the low end, will be 10 to 15. So we still have a lot of room to improve. The countries with presumed consent have the highest conversion rates because, as I'm saying, the, the biggest problem is consent. 
So you mentioned that the biggest barrier to transplantation is consent, but why wouldn't everyone consent then? Why is it such a challenge? The main reason is not what you might think. It's not religious. It's not necessarily cultural, although it is to some extent. It's not social. It's not economic. It's that the disenfranchised or disadvantaged, mainly segments of the population are worried that if that they won't get adequate or uh, optimum medical care if they come in with a with a life-threatening injury. They'll just be cared for so that their organs can be recovered. So there's paranoia about that. Um, you mentioned earlier that uh, um, Obamacare prevented having been an organ donor in the past from being, well, I mean, it, it eliminated pre-existing conditions basically as a, as a factor for determining cost of insurance. Um, did that uh, result in increase in organ donation at all? Now that that uh, here, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I can't answer that. But it, obviously, once you think about it, and you, if you were to talk to donors before that, they were having trouble, some, in some cases, getting covered, getting health insurance coverage because of a pre-existing condition. The other thing Obamacare did is it took away the cap. So. A liver transplant, I'm telling you, is 350. That's the cheapest one. If you're sick and you're in the ICU for a month, it's, you know, a couple million. In the past, before Obamacare, your insurance was going to run out. It had a cap. You'd be stuck. You'd be on the hook for the for the difference. The caps were like 250,000. In some cases, wasn't even going to pay for a liver transplant. So Obamacare took away the cap. You bring up some good points about the importance of having pre-existing conditions covered under the Affordable Care Act. If living donors are no longer able to receive health care without paying extremely high premiums or being billed for expenses over their cap, people may not want to sign up to become donors. Hopefully Obamacare stays in place and we don't lose all those two clauses. So what does the consent process look like? Are you involved with that at all? Obviously the transplant team can't be involved in consent or in managing the donor until declaration of death and consent are obtained. In Virginia, in order to declare brain death, you need two physicians, one of which needs to be a neuroscience specialist to declare brain death. At that point, then uh, the team caring for the patient will become uh, the end-of-life team or the ICU team, depending on what ICU, what, where they are, and uh, they will call in LifeNet or whatever organ procurement organization is involved, and then they'll start the ball rolling. One of the things that happened during my time was something called decoupling because in the beginning in the 80s uh, it was me who was asking for consent for, for organ donors uh, when the opios became a little more empowered they took it over and that helped a lot because the the obvious perception on the part of the family is that the surgeon who's taking care of the patient or who's involved in the patient's care one way or another is coming to ask me to take to give the organs what's going on here so the decoupling helped a lot what do you look for in a donor are there certain criteria to screen for? There are, there's a whole spectrum of quality of donor from the perfect donor, which is going to be a 21 year old with a gunshot to, wound to the head uh, who's stable and on no pressors and barely needs any FiO2, et cetera, to an expanded criteria or marginal donor, which would be generally an older donor, uh, might have some renal disease, hypertension, diabetes, et cetera, uh, might be on pressors, might be on maximum airway support, et cetera. As time has gone on from the, at least my tenure from the 80s till now, we have been able to take more marginal organs and make them work one way or another. Some of that has to do with improved preservation. 
that's good to know. I guess with technology and new techniques, it doesn't matter necessarily if it's the perfect organ. Now, I've heard a little bit about this new category for organ donation called imminent death donation. Can you explain what that is? Okay, there's this new category called imminent death donation. It's somewhere between DBD and DCD. Uh, actually, it's on its way to DCD. So it's a patient who qualifies for withdrawal of support because death is imminent or the situation is completely hopeless and two doctors have said so. Uh, but we would prefer to take the organs before the cardiac arrest occurs because of the quality of organ issue. Uh, and that's coming along. It's been out for public comment by UNOS. It seems to have a pretty positive public review. And so I think that that's going to be the next step that will increase probably the numbers, but definitely the quality of the DCD population. Sounds like imminent death donation may be used more often, and it could really help transplant patients since these organs will be of better quality. What other factors besides quality of the organ are used for transplant allocation? There is, in the last five or ten, well, actually about five years before I left, so 10 years ago, the allocation protocols took into account the quality of the organ and the acuity of illness of the recipient to try to match the two. So as part of the algorithm of kidney allocation, this is taken into account. You shared some really neat advancements here with the future of organ transplantation. Do you ever see it evolving so much? And you kind of alluded to this with improving the marginality, but do you ever see it evolving to the point where we won't even need a living donor? that they could just 3D print an organ using a patient's own stem cells? Okay, so some of that is happening already. Right, so we had actually a liver cell transplant lab and we did a total of 24 liver cell transplants. And we got these cells from livers that were discarded or explanted livers from patients who got a liver transplant. And we cultured the cells and we froze the cells and we kept them at minus 190 on liquid nitrogen until the time that they were thawed and infused into the portal vein of a patient in liver failure. We were able to make this work well enough to bridge the patient to a whole organ transplant. So some of that's already happening, liver cell transplant, but if you really want the liver to work like a liver, it has to be on a scaffold and you have to be able to populate it with the different cells. Maybe you could start with stem cells. That might be something that you'll see in your lifetime. We were able to, in our lab, genetically engineer hepatocytes to make insulin. That kind of stuff is coming. 3D printing as a, you know, as a scaffold to make a kidney, and then you populate it with nephron, or the 3D scaffold to make a pancreas, and then you, pro you populate it with islet cell. That stuff is coming. You're going to see that in your, in your lifetime. That's pretty cool, and I think it'll be interesting to see where the future of organ transplantation goes. And also, I'm sure we'll see some new ethical considerations involved with that arise, since I know stem cell research is another ethically tricky situation. May I ask a question about imminent death donation? Sure. Um, could you go into a little more detail on what that would look like? Is this somebody who comes in from a car accident that is clearly not going to make it, and then while they're still alive, or, or, or some scenario where the, the patient is still alive, not brain dead, and you take the organs from them before they die while they're still alive? Or how, how does that, like, function? Right. So that's a good question because there's something called the, de the dead donor rule. I don't know if you ran across that. The dead donor rule says that recovery of organs for transplantation cannot result in the patient's death. So the way that, with that in mind, the way that deceased donor DCD transplant, donation after cardiac death, happens is you have a patient, they don't meet the criteria for brain death, but the situation, but they're so badly injured that they're never going to recover. The situation is hopeless or they're about to die 
they're on pressors, for example, and they're and one after another of their systems is failing. But for example, let's say the liver is still good. So you would take the you would the liver is transplanted. If either or both of those situations pertain, then the patient would meet the criteria for the Natural Death Act. You would need two physicians to say the situation is hopeless and death is imminent. And then generally what we would do is we would take the patient to the in the operating room and have the table set up for the for the recovery. The end of life team, which would be the palliative care people, would be there and they would withdraw support, turn off the ventilator, turn off the pressors, and wait. And what we're hoping for is a quick within a couple of minutes, flat line, EKG, no breathing. And then at that point, two minutes has to go by because that's what the law is. And then we're able to open the patient and take the organ. So that, as I mentioned, results in a warm ischemic time. It's only going to be a few minutes, but it depends on how long the patient takes to uh, quote unquote die. Sometimes you withdraw support and you can sit there for 60 minutes as the blood pressure slowly trickles down until it then becomes zero and the EKG flatline. Those organs are not going to be that good because they've had a fairly protracted ischemic time. This is on that spectrum. We're not going to withdraw support. We're going to all agree that the patient has no hope that death is imminent, and under other circumstances, we would withdraw support, but we're going to all agree that it's okay to take the organs <clears throat> before that happens. So if you're a purist, that violates the dead donor rule. That violates the ethics of the whole business because they're not supposed to be killing the patient by taking their organ. They're supposed to be dead already. Does that answer your question? Yes, thank you. Thank you for explaining the process for transplanting organs. Who selects who would be a good donor-recipient match? Is it the transplanting surgeon, or is there a committee that assigns people within the hospital? All of these donor-recipient pairs are reviewed by a multidisciplinary selection committee, and uh, that includes the surgeons, the nephrologists, the psych- psychologists, the social worker, the financial people, uh, the nurses, and the coordinators, etc. And uh, the case is carefully reviewed before, they're, before a decision is made one way or the other. And that's the same thing for living donor liver as well. So living donor liver, in adults anyway, we're taking the usually the right lobe of the liver and transplanting it. So consent is really a big issue here, bigger than for the kidney because the risk is higher. So there is a donor advocate, there's a multidisciplinary selection committee, and then there's a quote-unquote cooling off period. So we go through the, all the risks and benefits for the donor and the donor family and the recipient, and then we ask them to wait a little while, like a month, and think it over to make sure that they really want to do this because there is much more risk. That's good that there are donor advocates for patients to rely on who will look out for the best interests of the patient undergoing a liver donation. How does that process work for kidney donation and transplantation? What does the wait list look like for that, and how is access to kidneys? First of all, to get on the wait list, your GFR has to be less than 20 cc's a minute. That's CKD stage 5. The waiting time uh, is calculated from the start of dialysis. So in the past, waiting time was from the initial evaluation for transplant going forward. Unfortunately, certain segments of the population have less access to transplant evaluation, partly because of their own doing, but partly because of other issues. Uh, And so this was an attempt to try and equalize some of the disparity as far as wait list waiting time. And as I mentioned, waiting time is the most uh, significant driver of whether or not you get a kidney. Um, Tissue typing is still 
done, uh, but not as important as it was because the drugs we have to prevent rejection are much more powerful and specific than 30, 40 years ago. Basically, there is a definite advantage now for younger patients to get better quality kidneys. The average wait time in Virginia for a deceased donor kidney, if you're a blood group A, is three years, and if you're a blood group O or B, is five years. Wow, I didn't realize wait times were that long in Virginia. How does that match up nationally? Is it shorter or longer? No, that's about what it is, I think. As you sit on the wait list, you get sicker and your outcome is worse. So this is not, so this is another sort of critique from the paper you sent me where they said that waiting list wait time is a flawed category and that we should just use a lottery. Well, that's, it's not exactly flawed the way that they understand it. Um, I'll say it another way. If you were, if you needed a kidney, it would be better for you to get it preemptively, meaning before you started dialysis, than to get on dialysis and wait for it. So the longer you're on the wait list, the more waiting time you have, the more likely you're going to get a kidney, but the more the sicker you've gotten while you've been waiting. I guess that's a good point. While a lottery system might seem like it's more equitable so that the rich can't just buy their way to the front of the line, the prognosis and outcome should matter as well as the other factors you mentioned. I'm not sure there's one single system that works best. One thing that's promising that I recently read is they're starting to consider transplanting organs from patients with pre-existing conditions, such as hepatitis C or HIV. Is that something you've seen? Over the years, we've expanded our uh, criteria for what is a reasonable donor, and so now we will do hepatitis C positive organ into hepatitis C positive recipient. Uh, in the last five years, uh, we've started doing HIV positive organ into HIV positive recipient, although there are not many of those. And then very recently, we've started doing HCV, hepatitis C positive into hepatitis C negative patients, which you might say is unethical, but the data says otherwise. Of course, the patients get treated with the antiviral, hepatitis C antiviral drugs, which are extremely effective. And then there's something called a high-risk donor. So all the donors get surveyed for various different virus, fungus, and bacteria. As you know, HIV can be negative in a window period of four to six weeks. And so you might have a negative screening, but the, the organ ends up being from an HIV positive patient into a negative patient, which would be bad because we don't do nearly as well with HIV as we do with HCV. As far as treatment, we do pretty well. So high-risk donors are generally donors who uh, have had multiple sexual partners or who've been uh, in prison or who have some other sort of life uh, activity that puts them at higher risk, who also have negative serologies going on. As part of the kidney algorithm, a six-antigen match, which is the, one, the perfect match, requires a mandatory share. So if we take a pair of kidneys out at MCV Hospital, and somebody in Seattle has a, it's a match, six antigen match to that patient, we have to send it, we have to offer it. They may not take it, but it has to be offered. And in the past, there used to be a payback, but evidently it's no longer exists. And then pediatrics have priority. Um, Dr. Posner, before we continue, could I ask a question about the mechanics of the wait list? Sure. Um, so I wanted to um, ask your opinion about uh, the situation um, with Steve Jobs and when he was in need of a liver transplant. Okay. Um, and I'll just reiterate that situation um, for the people who are listening. Um, so he had the ability with his, with his resources um, to list himself in uh, multiple transplant lists. 
um, in different regions um, in order to increase his chances um, of getting a liver in a timely fashion. Um, so I wanted to ask um, if you think that's fair um, and uh, if there are certain populations that uh, may benefit or do not benefit from uh, the ability to do that. I think everybody would benefit from the ability to multiply list if you have the, the wherewithal to do that. Obviously, there's some expense and there's some willingness to travel long distance with your support team, uh, which makes it a little, little bit prohibitive for most of the population. What you didn't mention is he also had a very controversial indication for transplantation. He had a metastatic neuroendocrine tumor from his pancreas to his liver. We did a small series of those. That was thought to be a reasonable indication for transplant. And now it's not an indication. So not only did he multiply list, he purposely picked Memphis mm -hmm. because their waiting time for liver was short and their results looked like they were pretty good. His mistake was treating himself with smoothies and juices and vitamins instead of going to seek real treatment for his tumor when he first was diagnosed. So you could criticize them for actually putting them, putting him on his on their list to do and then transplanting him. And then your question is, is it fair? Well, it's not really fair, but it is the way that civilization works. The rich and the powerful can do more than the poor and destitute. Should the system prohibit that? So it's not that expensive, to be honest. And uh, the data is out there for the public consumption. If you go on the UNOS website or if you go on a website called ustransplant.org, you can look at every center's outcomes and you can pick and you can look at all the characteristics of their outcomes, the wait list, the waitlist mortality, how long it takes to get a transplant, how, you know, what their transplant rate is, what their outcomes are at one, three and five and 10 years. And you can be relatively sophisticated. So I don't know, I'll ask you the same question. I mean, if, I don't know if you think it's fair, not totally <laughs> fair, but seems legitimate. Is there ever a system where you think that could be eliminated? Is there a way that we can make this process more equitable? Uh, well, it could be eliminated if you bring it up to the federal government and ask them to eliminate it, saying it's unethical. It's in the name, it's, it's, it's uh, allowed in the name of uh, the greatest good for the greatest number. Try to get everybody transplanted. He did anything wrong, but he obviously is somebody who had the resources to be able to do that. Not everybody does. And that makes it, I guess, less legitimate. What's happened now in liver transplant allocation is they've changed the system. So liver transplant used to be the same as I described for you for kidney, local, and then regional, and then national. Now it's changed. So it's a 500 mile radius from your center. So if you have a liver donor and your institution, uh, it's offered out to the common list of the 500 mile radius. And if nobody wants it, it could come back to you. What it used to be is if you pull the liver in your center, then if you couldn't use it on your list, then it would go to the region, which I described to you. And then if, they could, if there wasn't anybody in the region, then it could go national. This is to try and address the differences in geography with the different OPOs. Some OPOs are better than others. The Memphis OPO, the reason the wait list is, the wait time was short is because they had a good donors per million. That was before the system was changed. Um, the idea with the 500 mile radius is to satisfy the political and economic aims and requirements of the larger centers who have more sick people because this, the liver program is, the liver allocation is sickest first. 
looking at the EPTS of younger age, less dialysis, no diabetes, no prior kidney transplant would be a good donor. Typically, that's a young donor. I mean, a recipient, excuse me. And in the donor category, the, those sorts of things would be pertinent. So is sickest first the way all organs are allocated then, or is it specific to liver transplants? It seems like that's the main driver, you know, and for a good reason, those who need it the most and don't have as long to live. I guess with kidney transplants, dialysis is always an option while they wait, unlike with patients who need liver transplants. But what happens to patients who may be too sick to actually get much use out of their liver? For kidney transplant, then the waiting time is the driver. And then these other things are secondary. For liver transplant, the sickest patient first is the driver. There is a MELD score by which the patients are, are stratified. The MELD stands for modified end-stage liver disease and was developed to predict mortality uh, in cirrhotic patients who are undergoing TIPS, which is a non-invasive port-a-cable shunt to solve problems like bleeding and ascites, and was shown to be valid to predict post-transplant mortality. That's interesting. I didn't know the history behind how the MELD score was created. What are the factors or characteristics that make up this MELD score, and do you think this is a good measure for deciding who should get a liver, or do you see inequities in this score? It depends on age, bilirubin, serum sodium, INR, which is the protime, serum creatinine, and whether the patient's on dialysis. And the score goes from 15 to 40. And uh, one of the things this did, because the liver allocation used to be waiting time. One of the things this did is it established uniform listing criteria. So what used to happen with the waiting time on the liver is that programs would list their patients way before they needed a liver transplant so they could accumulate waiting time so they could attract a liver when the time came. Uh, That's one way that the system was gamed. Another way that the system is gamed is you can drive the sodium up and down by and the creatinine up and down by dehydrating your patients, drying them out. Or you could uh, let the INR go up, meaning they're autoanticoagulated, or you could even give them some anticoagulation so their INR was higher. So lots of ways to cheat. Anyway, this came into being in 2002. They changed the system, and so it became sickest patient first. You can't get listed for liver unless your male is 15 or more. What that means is that you're below 15, your survival at one year is equal with or without a liver transplant. And only when you get sicker, over 15, is it more beneficial to get the transplant than not. What this ends up doing is we're only going to be transplanting very sick patients. That means if you have liver disease, you're going to have to wait till you get super sick before you can get a transplant. Is that a good thing to do? Not really, because the outcomes may not be quite as good. What happens if two patients have the same MELD score? Who would get the liver? Is there another factor that is used? If two patients in in two locations have the same MELD score and are going to be offered this liver, the waiting time is used as a discriminator, the one that's been waiting longest. Of course, according to your article, the, they could use a lottery and they could just flip a coin and say, okay, you get it. There is something called share 35. That means that when the liver goes out to be shared, it's going to be offered first to people with meld of 35 or over. So once again, we're going to be we're going to be advantaging the sick patients. Status one uh, is even sicker than a meld of 40. Status one is somebody with acute hepatic failure, fulminant hepatic failure. They're generally in a coma but that's the way it is. I ask a question about the MELD score. So if you have one patient with a MELD score of, say, 40 and another with a score of 20, um, will they both have likely the same outcome after the liver transplant, or will the MELD score of 40 also have more complications and a a shorter lifespan? Like, are we letting people get sicker, and then because we're letting them get sicker, they're going to have worse outcomes throughout their life, even after transplant? 
they are going to have a worse outcome. So that's going to violate the principle of utility in the name of justice. That's that's the problem. I have a bit of a zoom out question. So going back to, to, to these God committees, from where we were then to where we are now, I guess, can, can you note any like major milestones where there, there was a lot of more um, ethical, I guess, thinking that went into these new protocols? And who would you say were the advocates? Was it the families that said, this is not fair, we need a better system? Or was it the actual, actual physician saying, I, I can't keep on doing this. Like this is, you know, th- this is wrong to me. We have to look at this, you know, and, and, and do better. So I think there's a whole lot of milestones that have been met over the 35 years that I've been in this business. And I think the ethics are a lot better than they were 35 years ago. And I think a lot of thinking and, and hand wringing and whatever has gone into it. I, the UNOS has the transplant community and so-called public members, members of either donor families or or recipients or just members at large from the public that are involved. So it's it's everybody. And they're all involved in generating the policy. And then the policy goes out for public comment. And then it comes back and it gets worked on. And then it goes out for public comment. It may go out for public comment lots of times before it's either approved or not approved. I think it's good that there is some accountability with patient advocates in the transplant community, you know, guiding policy and public commentary that is reviewed before a decision is made. So we've talked a lot about the current UNO system with sickest first and then wait time, but I want to talk more about what you think the ideal system would be, whether there are other principles or factors we should consider that currently aren't prioritized. I read an interesting paper by Prasad et al. published in The Lancet in 2009 um, entitled Principles for Allocation of Scarce Medical Interventions, a really great paper to learn more about the ethical challenges of organ allocation. If you'd like to read more, the citation for the paper is listed under the the description of this episode on our website, firstdonoharmpodcast.com. Briefly, for our listeners, they mention eight different principles that basically fall into the categories of treating people equally, favoring the worst off, maximizing total benefits, and promoting and rewarding social usefulness. And they conclude that we should actually be using a different system altogether, one that prioritizes younger people who have not yet lived a complete life, and also incorporates prognosis, saves the most lives, a lottery, and instrumental value principles. Do you agree with them, or do you think there are other factors that should go into organ allocation besides the ones currently used by UNOS to be more equitable? These authors are criticizing UNOS because they basically have their algorithms centered around sickest patient first. So, uh, yeah, their, their critique is that UNOS has, of their three categories, two are flawed. I think we've, we've talked about the first two categories. The main comment I want to make about the waiting time and the idea that it could be a lottery, I really have a problem with that for the reason that I mentioned to you, and that is that waiting time is not sort of a random priority allocation. It has to do with progressive disease in patients waiting transplant. So it's not like they get to a point where they need a transplant and then they sit at that point and nothing happens until they get the transplant. No. What happens is the longer they wait, the more sick they get and the worse the prognosis is going to be. How would you balance waiting time with prognosis then? Should more weight be placed on prognosis instead since we want the most benefit to come out of this organ? I think that waiting time is a legitimate category for the reason that I'm saying. And once we, if we were able to come up with more organs, uh, we would do much better with the waiting time. 
I have my problem is with the sickest patient first. So going back to the beginnings in the 1980s and early 90s, we were transplanting livers into relatively healthy patients, but they were all in a situation where if they didn't get a transplant, they were going to be dead in six months to a year. Uh, but they were not, they were probably melds of 20 to 25 instead of 35 to 40. And their outcomes were much better. I went to sickest patient first because somebody had a, you know, it was political. I don't mind telling you. It was Donna Shalala and Clinton and the politics of the largest center. So to give you some perspective on that, every transplant surgeon is working in a center and has a list of patients on his, in his center to whom he or she feels dedicated and to getting them transplanted. So everybody wants the organ to come to them if possible. And so there was a, there's a lot of center-directed activity that needs to be counteracted, which, which it has over the last 30 years. So that lists are now, well, I just told you the liver, the liver distribution is a 500-mile radius, which is about the limit, pushes the limit of the cold preservation time for the liver. Uh, the kidney, I didn't tell you, but I will. The, the kidney wait list went from our center to all of Virginia. So now our local is the state of Virginia, of which there are four or five kidney transplant programs and a list of 1,500 patients instead of our list, which is like 500 patients. The sickest patient first clearly violates, I think, prognosis and it violates the utility. And so I, you know, I got a little problem with that. I, but that doesn't mean you can get rid of it. You can get rid of it because it obviously is pertinent. The authors say that uh, remedies by UNERS have been covert and haphazard. They're talking about taking old sick people off the wait list. Well, so as you accrue time on the wait list, there comes a point in some patients where they're no longer transplantable. Either they've reached a point where their heart disease is so severe they're not going to get through the surgery, or they have other comorbidities which have intervened and now, you know, or they've developed a cancer which, which gets them off the list, etc. So I think that that's a little unfair on the part of them to be saying that. The new kidney allocation addresses prognosis and youngest first. That's one of their comments, and I went through that with you with the EPTS. UNOS always puts the policy out for public comment. So they're criticizing UNOS, saying that it's uh, that they're not transparent, that they've come up with all these rules sort of in a closet, and now they're telling you, well, this is this is the way it is. That's really not true. The lottery poor organ. Okay, they're saying there was poor organ recipient matching during the 90s led to poor outcomes. That's not true. There was perhaps poor organ recipient matching in the 90s because in the 90s we had Prograf and Celsept and uh, other drugs that made tissue typing, which is the organ recipient matching they're talking about, less relevant. The outcomes are so good with these newer drugs that tissue typing fell by the wayside to some extent. They've spent a couple paragraphs outlining their solution to the problem, which clearly is age discrimination, and their argument to defend it, I think, is pretty weak, notwithstanding the fact that I'm 71. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but I did tell you that the algorithm has been reoriented to, uh, in the case of a very good organ, offer it to a young, healthy patient instead of randomly allocating it to the guy with the most waiting time. So that's been taken care of. Yeah, that makes sense. I think you provided some good counterpoints to the model they suggested, which you're right, is ageist. It prioritizes younger people. And, you know, their reasoning is that they have more life to live, but also we have invested in their potential to contribute to society. But then what happens to the 70-year-old who also needs an organ and who already has contributed to society? 
I think while the UNO system for organ allocation is not perfect, it does still do a good job at trying to make sure that organs are distributed to those that need them the most and have been waiting. But like we mentioned with Steve Jobs, there are still ways people can game the system, so it definitely still has room for improvement to be more equitable. Okay, one more thing. One um, thing that I think could improve the situation would be universal health care. That would remove the pressure for patients to have to pay to get on the list because there is a fee to, to, to get evaluated, et cetera. That would remove any sort of issue with multiple listing. That would remove the issue of some patients who stop their medications after three years because they can't afford to buy them because Medicare has terminated. That would solve a lot of problems. The other issue is presumed consent. So the argument against presumed consent in, in the U.S. is that it is a, a totalitarian regime type principle, that it's inconsistent with democracy. Not really. You have an option to, to opt out. You have to seek it out to do it. And in most of the countries that have presumed consent, if the family comes and makes a big fuss, they back away. So there's sort of two safeguards there. One is you have the option to opt out opt out, and second, uh, the family can reverse the process. Do you think autonomy ever contradicts the opt-out versus opt-in system? If we move to an opt-out system, do you think people will actually choose to opt-out, or because they're already in, they'll just stay and, you know, forgo the paperwork to change? Maybe that's a way to actually get more organ donors. Well, so that's not what happened in Spain, and another example is Austria. Austria had like a 50% increase in their organs, in their recovery of organs, once they went to presumed consent. So in every country where it's in place, it works. I also uh, wanted um, to add a comment um, about this opt-out system, because you alluded to before um, the idea of marginalized populations feeling like they might receive lesser care um, if they're... Um, if they've elected to go with organ donation. And so if you have the default being that patients are going to donate their organs, then I think that might also serve to alleviate some of that concern if that's kind of the, the default. Right. So a lot of that is patient education, which is the other way that this is going to improve. But believe me, there has been a boatload of patient education in my 35 years. And we are better, but you know, we're not, we're not close to, we're not even close to Spain. In general, I think the consent and the consent issue is the uh, speed bump in the whole process. How many transplant surgeries have you done in your career? And are there any ethical scenarios that stand out to you that you personally encountered where you had to make a difficult decision? So I probably have done, I don't know, 1,500 to 2,000 kidney transplants and 900 plus liver transplants and I don't know, maybe 40 pancreas transplants. Pancreas is pretty uncommon in our problem. I also did vascular surgery for the first 15 years of my practice. Here's a couple of sort of interesting cases. So back in the 90s, we would import a kidney and we would bring the patient to surgery and open the patient and dissect out the iliac vessels and get, get ready to sew it in. And then we would go look at the kidney and on the back table and prepare it, remove some of the fat and and dissect out the artery, the vein, and the ureter. So in one case, this is one of my partners, he's doing that and he sees that there's a tumor on the kidney that the donor surgeon at Duke didn't tell him about. So now what's he gonna do? So he biopsies the tumor and it comes back renal cell carcinoma. So he makes the appropriate decision not to put the kidney in the lady and she closes her up and she decides to sue him 
And so he has to go through a lawsuit, which, of course, he wins. So that case made us change our practice. And we changed it to now we're going to go in the room, open the box, take the kidney out, put it on the back table, look at it carefully, do the dissection before we bring the patient in the room. And that has solved the problem. Although we did have a few cases where there was some consternation over whether the ABO was correct. There's another case where the patient woke up without a kidney and was unhappy because it was an ABO snafu. You have to make sure that your ABO is compatible. I have a question about those uh, committees you were talking about. So I'm sure that um, a lot of people who do get involved or are personally touched by the topic of transplant, which is probably what motivated them to, 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 to go in and advocate and create policy. Do you think that those are necessarily the best people who have some kind of personal connection of a story in their mind and they're going to advocate for that story to make policy for America or for, 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 for state systems? Right. If that's, if that's the case. I think the overwhelming majority of people who are at those committees are in the are transplant professionals, not the public. But you're right, those the public who have a story, I mean, those are the people who are interested. You can't drag the uninterested people who have no story and get them to come in there and try to make decisions. They're not going to want to do that. But I think in general, the although these other people do sit on these committees, the main decision makers are the transplant professionals. Having sat on some of these committees, I mean, you know, I can say that these people are taking it seriously and are trying to come up with the best algorithm. But as I mentioned, everybody has in the back of their mind, I want to make sure that my center does well, that my patients do well. I need to protect my program in the sense that I need to make sure that the organs I, for my patients are going to come my way. That may not be something that is ethically pure, but that's a reality. What are your thoughts on organ transplantation for modifiable social behaviors that led to them needing a transplant, such as alcoholics with cirrhosis or active illicit substance users who need transplant? That's a good question. Yeah, so drugs is a, is a deal breaker. But alcoholism, we have done transplants. We've maybe 10% of our, trans, our transplant list is alcohol. The way we've tried to manage it more or less successfully is to have the patient completely evaluated psychiatrically and from a substance abuse point of view, et cetera, and then sign a contract that they'll be abstinent for six months before they get activated on the list and then sign a contract that the same contract says, I'm not going to drink after I get my liver. So do you think that works? Well, I want to be optimistic and say yes, but probably not. Not that well. Maybe 30 to 50% of these patients are recidivists, which means they go back to drinking. So that's, that's an unsolved problem. Do you see other causes for organ transplantation taking priority over people who had modifiable social behaviors that led to their needing a transplant? Uh, well, so there's the whole category of liver cancer. So early liver cancer is a transplantable disease, and there are very strict criteria, so-called Milan criteria. The problem with that is that you, once you have the diagnosis of early liver cancer, you can't wait too long to do the transplant because it won't be early anymore. So basically, it has to be confined to the liver, and it has to be small and it could be multiple sites, but they all have to be small, et cetera. So the way we've solved that problem, those patients get a bunch of extra meld points. Their score bumps up to 22. So those are patients who otherwise wouldn't have much of a meld score because their disease is almost always hepatitis C, and it's not that severe. Their real problem is the HCC, the hepatocellular function. 
I guess that makes sense if they have a good chance of survival after transplantation, as opposed to people who may lose their transplanted liver if they go back to these bad behaviors, like drinking or using illicit substances. How many people are actually non-compliant after liver transplant? So maybe 5 or 10% of the organ loss is non-compliant. I had a woman who got a message from God to stop her drugs, and she rejected her liver. We spent a lot of time with her, and in the end, we gave her a second liver, and she behaved. I had a college student. This is adolescence of the worst. A college student who uh, I put a kidney in when he was a small boy, and now he's 20-something, and he feels good, and he's invincible, and he's 20-something. He stopped his medicines, and he rejected his kidney. Went back on dialysis and was dead in a year. So compliance issues are a big problem, and people who have drug problems don't do well with compliance. So for someone who has um, an inherited disorder, um, like Wilson's disease or like alpha-1 antitrypsin, um, but they also have a history of substance abuse, um, how do you parse out that, uh, the eligibility of that kind of patient? Yeah, so it depends on what the substance, if we can get them to stop abusing the substance, they'd be a really good candidate. Wilson's disease that decompensates is one of the status one categories. That's an emergency transplant. Alpha-1 antitrypsin, we had a lady who who had alpha-1 antitrypsin and, and developed fulminant hepatic failure, and we rescued her with a cell transplant for 11 days, and then we found a whole organ for her. And both of those are serious liver disease in their, you know, on their own merit. We sort of have to separate the drug abuse problem. If you can't, then they're not going to get a transplant. How much say does the surgeon, does the transplant surgeon have in terms of, you know, who gets a, an organ? Like, if, if you think that like if you thought a, a patient shouldn't receive another organ. Well, I could refuse. I could kick and scream and get on the floor and jump up and down, but I don't do that. I'm not going to do that. There's a, a committee. There's a selection committee that's going to you know, evaluate the patient, and it's going to be the transplant medical person, so it's either a hepatologist or a nephrologist and the surgeons, and then all the other people I mentioned, psychiatrists, social worker, blah, blah. And so it's a committee decision for the most part. There have been some patients that we that I've said I'm not gonna I'm not gonna touch this guy. Somebody else might want to. And the patient has an option to go elsewhere. If we turn them down, they have an option to go elsewhere. What usually happens is patients come to us after they've been turned down elsewhere because we <laughs> we have a pretty liberal policy of who gets transplanted. Thank you so much, Dr. Posner. You shared a lot of really interesting information with us about the history of organ transplantation, the ethical considerations that go into deciding how organs are allocated and the principles that should be considered. I think we all really enjoyed learning a lot about this topic from one of our very own experts. So thank you again for speaking with us today. This was very enjoyable. Yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed yourself. Thank you for listening to this episode of First Do No Harm on organ transplantation. We hope you learned a lot about the considerations that go into allocating a scarce resource and ways to think about how we can make the system more equitable. One way we can all help is by opting in to become an organ donor because it is so important and as Dr. Posner mentioned, we have a resource shortage. So this is one way we can all do our part to help save lives. It's a very simple process if you haven't done it already. Just sign up on your state's organ donor registry or through the DMV when you renew your driver's license. And remember to spread the word to family and friends as well. For more information, check out our website, firstdonoharmpodcast.com.